This is They Create Worlds, Episode 13, The Fall of Acclaim. We would like to dedicate this episode to Fergus McGovern, co-founder of Probe Software, who died February 27, 2016, at the age of 50. If anybody wants to find Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Last time we covered the rise of acclaim, and this time we must herald its fall. That's right, because as I'm sure most of our listeners know, Acclaim Entertainment is not a company that's actually around anymore. Which is really surprising, considering in the rise we went over how much acclaim was a major player. It was toe-to-toe with EA. It was toe-to-toe with other companies. It was such a big company that it was buddy-buddy with Nintendo. Absolutely. I mean, riding the wave of its success on the uh, Nintendo platform in the 1980s and then on the success of Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam on all platforms in the early 1990s, by 1994, Acclaim was a company that was earning just shy of $500 million. Profits, of course, were much lower than that, but it was a profitable company as well. It was a company that had established a place for itself at the top of the pecking order of third-party developers and was beginning to heavily invest in the technology necessary to keep it on top for years to come. Makes sense. If you're top dog, you want to remain top dog. It seems like, especially when we went over their initial founders, you had people who really understood marketing. You had people who really wanted to bring in the product and publish it, and they were dabbling a little bit with game development, right? Well, at this point, they didn't have any internal game development, but they were starting to create certain support structures through their R&D operation that was headed by Wes Traeger. They had started doing research into how best to transition to polygonal graphics, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, By 1995, they were actually building a motion capture studio, the very first motion capture studio in the video game industry. Really? Yes, and one of the first in any industry. There were actually movies that were filmed in part using their motion capture studio. Batman Forever, for instance, the blockbuster Batman movie that came out in the late 90s. They did some of their motion capture on the Acclaim studio. That's really good. I mean, they're investing in technology and people who aren't even in the necessarily the same industry are coming to them saying, hey, you guys got an awesome setup here. I'd like to take advantage of that and pay you some money. Exactly. And they were also looking at ways of changing up distribution. By this point, they had their own distribution company, ADI. It mostly just distributed Acclaim products, but they also did a small amount of distribution for other companies. And they were beginning to look into cable distribution as well. And they had. Sort of like uh, downloading stuff over the internet? Exactly. And Sega had already been experimenting with this in 94, uh, 95 through a service called the Sega Channel. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of a fire and forget kind of thing where you would download a game and, and play the game and then the game was lost. What Acclaim was looking to do was something similar, really, to what. Xbox Live became later, which was Hmm. having this kind of whole ecosystem where you could purchase your games remotely and have them download and save them and play them against other people. And it was all very ambitious. And who's to say 
whether it would have actually worked, whether the technology was really up to the vision, but especially the internet at that time. Exactly, but uh, well, this wouldn't have been the internet really. This this would have been via cable. I mean, that's broadband, but we're not talking about an internet connection. We're talking about the cable companies actually making this stuff available and getting it directly from the same coax that's going into your television. We don't really have the concept of broadband internet in the in the mid-90s yet. It was more akin to sort of like a special channel um, like HBO or Showtime, except instead of it being video, it would be data for specifically acclaimed product. Exactly. And this is something that had been fiddled around with in one way, shape, or form really from the beginning. There was even a plan with the Magnavox Odyssey before it was released to do Hmm. something involving cable. Now, this wouldn't have been downloading of games, but it would have been basically broadcasting images over cable because the Magnavox Odyssey could only place dots and lines on the screen. So the idea was that a cable network could point a camera at a more elaborate backdrop, like a tennis court for playing a tennis game, and then thus that video signal would be broadcast to you through your cable and so it would place that background image on the television and then the odyssey's spots would be superimposed on top so you wouldn't have to have the plastic overlay like you had to originally with the odyssey precisely so there'd been different attempts to kind of harness cable as a way of improving the video game experience before Uh, including, of course, the Sega channel that we talked about, too. So that wasn't entirely new. What was new was this bold vision of having this complete infrastructure in place where you could download games, keep games, play games, all of that. But they weren't able to go from kind of the basic planning of it into prototype stage because this is the point that Acclaim suddenly started running out of money. Okay, if they had $500 million in net profits or not net profits, uh, revenue, what would be their, and their prop, they were, you said they were still profitable, right? Yes, in, in 1994 they were. Okay, but somehow this dynamic uh, started to falter. Yes, and to understand that, you really have to take a step back and look at what was going on in the video game industry generally in this time period. The transition between 8-bit consoles and 16-bit consoles had been a relatively smooth transition. This is because the NES maintained its value well into 1990, and by 1991, you had Sega picking up steam with Sonic, and you had Nintendo releasing the Super Nintendo late in the year, so it was a very orderly transition. However, practically speaking, there really wasn't a huge amount of difference between an 8-bit software product and a 16-bit software product. Really? No, there really wasn't. There was a discernible difference in graphics Mm -hmm. and in animation and in shading and all of these things that made 16-bit games look much prettier. Okay. And obviously you could drive more objects on the screen as well because you had faster processors that could handle more sprites at once. So you certainly saw a change in the presentation of the games. Yeah, and that's what I remember mostly with Nintendo, Super Nintendo. And what made the Super Nintendo so awesome was its graphics looked really good. It seemed like the gameplay was better. Everything was smoother, more stuff, more things going on. Yes, but there was really just the same kind of games, though, wasn't it? I mean, when you strip down Super Mario Bros. 3 and Super Mario World, there's really not that much difference in the gameplay. 
you compare Legend of Zelda to Zelda 3, there's not huge amounts of difference in the gameplay. Hmm. Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy 4, not a huge amount of difference in the gameplay. And the it problem... It looks prettier. Looks much prettier and plays better, too. There's no doubting that it was a uh, step up. But the types of games were still the same, and it was becoming very much a market that was full of sequels just being churned out and churned out and churned out. So the Mega Man series continues with Mega Man X and Mega Man X2 and Mega Man X3 and Mega Man 7, and you have Castlevania 4 and Castlevania 5, and you have Final Fantasies, and in Japan you have Dragon Quests, and there isn't a lot of innovation going on in the market but at the same time, the market is starting to get overheated with more and more companies becoming involved in the market. And really what's hmm. happening here is you're getting close to a situation that you had in the early 80s when the Atari market crashed, where the market kind of stalled itself out because there was no real clear path forward to an interesting new paradigm. And then you had the channels becoming very stuffed with product. And it's all the same basic kind of product. Exactly. And it wasn't quite to the extreme of the Atari market, because by this point, everyone understood the concept of third parties taking their share of the market. In mm -hmm. 1982, 83, Atari kept acting like it had 100% of the market and basically not deigning to recognize that there were third parties. And so stuff like that was a problem. Mm -hmm. So there were more controls in place at this time. But... There was a slowdown in the market. The market started getting tired of these games. There mm -hmm. was kind of a high water mark in 1992, and then the market started slowly declining. Hmm. And it really started becoming acute in 94 and 95. And basically what happened is that you had Sony coming in with its CD technology. You had Sega coming in too, but really mm -hmm. the big name here is Sony. And you have this paradigm shift that's about to happen where we're moving from cartridge media to disc-based media, which really changes the industry in so many ways because it allows for far more expansive storage and therefore greater gameplay and greater graphics and much, many more graphics and much longer better games. sound, longer games and all of that stuff. You have Nintendo and Sega still trying to hold on to their 16-bit cartridge market for as long as possible. And you have the companies that are already heavily invested in the cartridge market trying to hold on to the cartridge market for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. So even as the market is starting to decline in 93 and 94, and even as the market appears to be moving towards disc media, you don't get the third-party companies necessarily slowing down their rate of releases on those 16-bit consoles because they think that they can just keep riding that wave. They're not winding down to prepare for a transition. They're just going four feet ahead like the beginning or the middle of the cycle. Exactly. Because at this point, there still isn't that great an understanding of cycles because the first cycle, of course, was ended by the Atari crash. So there was no console transition. It just blew up in flames. Exactly. Then you had a transition between 8 and 16-bit, but as I stated, it was a fairly orderly transition. Mm -hmm. There really wasn't a huge downturn that occurred during that period of time. It was more of an evolution as we're going, hey, we can shove more stuff into these cartridges. Let's get a system that can better handle that and proceed on. But it's more like 
doubling and tripling the storage and upping the graphics and sound a little bit? Sure. And there really, I mean, there was definitely a leap forward between the 8-bit and the 16-bit. But one thing that's kind of interesting about that 8-bit period is that the technology kept improving improving across that 8-bit generation in a way it didn't during the Atari crash because a lot of these companies were making daughter chips that they could put in their cartridges to add mm. more expansive capabilities. Like Castlevania III, for instance, had a fantastic soundtrack and a fantastic audio quality because Konami stuck a chip in there that gave Castlevania III far better audio capabilities than the Famicom could manage on its own. Now, in the United States, Castlevania III didn't have these sound enhancements because there were differences in the way that the NES accepted chips vis-a-vis the Famicom. Mm -hmm. But even in the United States, it had an advanced Nintendo chip that still made the graphics far better than previous games, just Mm -hmm. didn't have the same sound quality. So in Japan, and to a lesser extent in the United States, there were advances that were continuing to be made, and the games were getting more and more impressive. So there was a pretty smooth transition kind of between the 8 and the 16-bit market because the NES stayed popular just long enough for the next generation to kind of come in and start building right where they left off. That sort of makes sense, because if you look at the early games for the Super Nintendo, they just look like fancier versions of NES games, but still have a lot of the same color palette, a lot of the same level of detail, maybe a little bit more, just sort of like along the same lines that the Nintendo would be going, but they're not taking full advantage of the capabilities of the Super Nintendo. Right, because of course, when you have any new platform, it takes a while to kind of wrap your head around the new things going on, which has become even more true on succeeding generations of consoles because now the hardware is so complex mm-hmm. that it really takes a long time to unlock the full potential. But that was even true back then. You get your your sweet spot is kind of the middle of the cycle because at the beginning of the cycle, you don't really get decent sales or huge leaps in games because, of course, fewer people have adopted your console so that there's fewer software sales mm-hmm. and you don't have a grasp on the console yet, so you don't get the technical capability. By the end of the console's life cycle, you have the greatest understanding of the platform, and so you're getting your most technically impressive games. But by this point, people are already kind of looking towards the next big system, so your sales are starting to drop off a little bit on most games because people are holding out for the new generation. So kind of the middle years of the console generation are your sweet spot, because even though you haven't plumbed the full depths of the technical specifications you still have a pretty good idea of what the system can do and this is the point when your audience is most engaged and so you're going to kind of get your best sales Mm -hmm. and i think this is something that the market understands now that the companies understand now but i don't think they really understood that in the early 1990s because they hadn't really been through a big transition yet in this way because the 8-bit transition was kind of staggered because Sega got into the market first mm-hmm. and the Famicom was out for so many years in America before it was out in Japan so they were different places in the product cycle in two different countries mm-hmm. and so you didn't kind of have this big switch over but now with the 16-bit to the 32-bit generation you were about to have a big switch over where everybody was planning to release their new consoles within a short period of time of each other. Nintendo ended up releasing much later than the other two, but that wasn't their original intent. Right. So this is the first kind of big console transition that occurred, and I don't think companies like Acclaim, and also like Data East and Capcom, I'm not just throwing Acclaim under the bus on this one, really understood 
that at this point, you're not going to get the same penetration for your product as you are earlier in the cycle. And I do think that there was an extra layer of difficulty in this one because there was great confusion mm -hmm. in the market as to where the technology was going next. It wasn't nearly as orderly a console transition as later console transitions would be because in addition to Sony entering the market, mm -hmm. you also had Atari re-entering the market for the first time in a few years with the Jaguar. Mm -hmm. which came out in 1993, kind of preempting everybody. You had the 3DO coming out, which was advertised as a multimedia system, more than just a video game system, something that could also be used for advanced video and audio capabilities outside of that. Basically, what the internet without the internet. I mean, there was this mm. brief craze for multimedia where the idea was that you could buy an encyclopedia program for your multimedia system and then you can read an encyclopedia article and then view all the pretty pictures and then play the sound <laughs> clips. What Encarta was. But we're not talking about doing this just on a computer. We're talking about doing this on a special system made just for this kind of thing to be placed be in the living room. hard to imagine doing that. You imagine trying to read articles and stuff on an old-style CRT screen. I know. It was really nuts. It was... People kind of got taken with this whole concept of multimedia, mm -hmm. and there were a few attempts at multimedia set-top boxes. 3DO was one, and there was the Philips CDI, which is right. a very well-known disaster. Commodore tried one called the CDTV. They were right that this kind of interlinking of different forms of media was going to be the wave of the future. What they got wrong was that people aren't going to want a set-top box and a CD full of stuff. What they're going to want is the internet and a computer. <laughs> <laughs> but at this time, the yeah. internet was in its infancy. I mean, in the early 90s, I, it hadn't even been opened up to commercial use yet. Mm -hmm. So obviously yeah. they they didn't know because many of these projects started in the late 80s when you still just had the arpanet there was no world wide web right. <laughs> or anything like that so there was a lot of confusion in the market are these multimedia boxes going to be the next thing where does cd fit into this where do the traditional consoles fit in are video games still a fad because at this point the crash is pretty recent memory mm -hmm. still it's less than a decade ago and so there's still a lot of talk a lot of whispers that video games are just a fad they're eventually going to be replaced by something else mm -hmm. i think part of this is because it's still primarily attached to the toy industry at this point and the saying in the toy industry is no toy gets a third christmas <laughs> And not just that, I mean, a lot of people still have the thought, especially then, that video games are for kids. Adults don't play these. Exactly. And for the most part, adults didn't play them. There was certainly some that did, but I mean, the main audience was still children. And the Sega Genesis had pushed that more towards teenagers as well as younger kids. But the idea of college students or adults playing video games was really not a thing yet. So it was mm -hmm. still part of the toy industry. The toy industry thought in terms of fads. And when you throw in the 1980s crash, mm. well, so you Here's have a validity. Yeah. So you have a lot of confusion in the market and you have a kind of chaotic transition because Atari launches in 1993, 3DO launches in 1994, Sega and Sony launch in 1994 in, J in Japan, are going to launch in 95 in the United States. Nintendo is planning to launch in the United States in 1995 as well at this point and ends up getting pushed back. So there's so much confusion and nobody really understands what a market transition is. So how most, of, how do most of the companies respond to this? 
Well, they keep releasing product for what they know is working, which is the 16-bit console market. Yep. A lot of stuff came out for the Super Nintendo and the Genesis for many, many years. Absolutely, it did. And Electronic Arts and Acclaim were very close to each other in size. I think Acclaim was actually worth slightly more, but they were very close, roughly around $500 million. Electronic Arts chose at this point to really start investing in CD-ROM. They established an advanced products group mm-hmm. that was dedicated to pushing CD-ROM software. On the PC side, not the console side, they expanded their affiliated label program hmm. with an emphasis on signing companies creating multimedia software into their affiliated label program right. to get them on cd 3DO, of course, started as an EA project. It was started by Trip Hawkins at EA and ended up spinning off into a separate company because basically there was a board revolt because EA was a software company that made software for all platforms. Mm-hmm. And that is running counter to EA also being its own platform right. in the form of 3DO. And we went over this in our EA episode, too. Exactly. So there had to be a split right there. But because it started as an EA project, the plus side of that is that EA was very, very closely looking at CD-ROM technology from a very early date. And you can certainly thank Trip Hawkins' vision for that because Mm. he's the one that identified very early on that the market was going to go CD. Now, it ended up that his 3DO project specifically was a failure. But he was right about where the market was going. And because he had EA working on that, EA was ready to get in very quickly. Then Sony came to EA and gave them a really sweetheart deal to Mm. publish on the PlayStation because they knew they needed somebody in their corner. Someone big Mm -hmm. on that level. And so EA got involved in CD. Acclaim didn't. Did Sony make the same offer to Acclaim? I have no knowledge of that. Um, I haven't been able to talk to anyone specifically on that question. But Acclaim was very close to Nintendo. Mm, And so that might have gave them a bit of a stigma? Very well could have. And in fact, Acclaim signed on as one of the first members of Nintendo's so-called Dream Team for their Ultra 64 product, the console that became the N64. Mm Mm-hmm. Nintendo called it the Dream Team as a way of kind of building up and marketing hype. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, the majority of the really, really great third-party companies didn't sign on. But basically, Nintendo wanted to make sure that it had a stable of software and a stable of software developers at launch for the Ultra 64. And so they made this agreement where they would give companies dev kits well in advance of when third parties normally got dev kits to work on a new system. But in return for that, they had to agree to create an exclusive game for the Ultra 64. Okay. And what would the exclusive game for Acclaim? Well, that's getting a little bit ahead of the curve, but what eventually became the exclusive game was Turok. Ah, okay. I remember that one. Mm Mm-hmm. And that didn't mean that everything was exclusive to the N64. It's just that whichever game you pledged to the N64 had to be exclusive. And so you got a head start on the competition in return for being exclusive and giving up sales on other platforms of whatever your game was. Hmm. And most of the major publishers were not interested in this. 
it was mostly smaller publishers that finally came on board. Companies like Spectrum Holobyte and DMA Design and Ocean Software in Europe and a few other really minor houses. Game Tech was another publisher, mostly known for their Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy games. Rare. Well, now, Rare is not a publisher. Rare is developing. Rare has a close relationship with Nintendo. So they're not part of the dream team of publishers, but they certainly are developing. Yeah, I just on the remember N64. so many logos on N64 games that had Rare on it. Oh, yeah. No, they made a lot of games, a lot of great games, but not part of the dream team because by that point it was kind of a second party relationship because Nintendo had actually invested in Rare. They didn't mm. own it, but they had invested in it. So Acclaim was one of the few third parties of any significance that actually agreed to be part of this and, you know, had a very close relationship with Nintendo going way back. So it could be that because of that, Sony wasn't so hot on adding Acclaim to kind of their stable. Sony went after different companies like Electronic Arts. Hmm. So they didn't get on CD. They decided to play it safe. I think part of the thing was, too, that they were a public company. So was Electronic Arts. But... Mm. They were a public company, and when you're public, you need to hit your quarters, and you have to get analysts to buy into what you're doing so that they recommend people buy your stock so the stock runs. And the stock market tends to be risk-adverse. The stock market tends to prefer what worked before. That's yeah. why every time there's a change in the market, people sell their stocks. They don't wait to see whether the change is a good thing or a bad thing. Stock market goes down because uncertainty is what the stock market doesn't like. Hmm. And right now, at this point, the certain thing was cartridges. Acclaim was making lots of money in cartridge sales, so Acclaim needs to keep making money in cartridge sales so the stock goes up and everyone gets paid and everyone's happy. And the only one who is doing cartridges in the new generation is Nintendo. That's true, but right now we're just, we're not even talking about the next generation. We're talking about the Christmas in 1994 and 1995 when the CD-based systems aren't really going to be a major force yet, where cartridge sales are still going to be, theoretically, the majority of the market. So we're still talking Super Nintendo and, and Genesis. Genesis. Absolutely, we are. And basically, Acclaim decides that they're going to stick to what they do best and make cartridge games and make a lot of cartridge games and not invest in CD until they have a sense of where that market is going. And Robert Holmes, president, even said in an interview, basically, he said, at worst, we're second to the party. Hmm. I mean, they were, they were unapologetic about <laughs> their sticking to consoles and didn't see a big issue. It's so much, it doesn't really, and at least in his mind, we don't care whether or not we're the first people to go over to CDs or not. There'll be enough time to transition. Exactly. And then it turns out that the bottom completely falls out of the cartridge market. And why is that? For the reasons that we already talked about before. There was fatigue on the part of the public because there hadn't really been that much innovation in gameplay. There was huge confusion in the market because you had these new platforms like the Jaguar and the 3DO coming out. You had Sega clouding the issue by releasing the 32X as an add-on to the Genesis. Mm. So you had great confusion in the market. You had market fatigue. You had a natural console transition happening because, as it turns out, and people didn't really understand this yet, I don't think, as it turns out, there's always a decline in the market during a period of hardware transition. Mm -hmm. because you have people stopping buying the old stuff because they know the new better stuff's coming, but you only have early adopters actually buying the new stuff. 
So more people stop buying from the old generation than start buying from the new generation. Until you have some sort of more defined winner as you know what kind of games you want and then you know which console to get. Plus, you're waiting for prices to come down. I mean, that's what a lot of it is. Stuff's expensive when it first launches. So there's always a small dip in the market when there's a transition. And I don't think people really understood how the transitions worked yet. In later periods of time, when there would still be small dips, companies were kind of ready for it. They Mm kind of knew that they shouldn't be releasing as much product into the market. But this time, a lot of companies like Acclaim, like Data East, like Capcom, were still going full speed ahead as if the market wasn't about to dip. So there was quite simply just too much product in the channel. Hmm. And it couldn't possibly all sell. They were overproducing. Way overproducing. And Acclaim lost hundreds of millions of dollars. That's not good. And it only kept getting worse. First of all, they couldn't sell everything that they made, but then the returns kept piling up because, again, retailers don't take the hit Mm. when a product doesn't sell. Retailers return the product to the manufacturer, and the manufacturer takes the hit. Hmm. So they had a bad Christmas, and then it just kept getting worse because they had to keep restating their figures because they set aside some money to compensate for returned product. Right. And then it turned out they got way more returns than they were expecting because marking down this product isn't going to work anymore. I mean, at this point, the 32-bit consoles are a coming. Mm-hmm. and the cartridges did not sell well, and the retailers realized the cartridges aren't going to sell well in the future either. So they're not just marking them down or discarding them or doing promotional deals. Product's coming back. They're just saying, we're not even going to play this game. We are just going to clear it all out so that we can go with the new stuff. Exactly. And so they're returning product, and to claim a set-aside money for handling returns, but it's not enough money. So then there are more returns. So then they have to restate again. Then there are accusations that they're warehousing product as a method of hiding losses, keeping it warehouse so that they don't have to do any markdowns on it, you know, kind of pushing that out. Mm-hmm. And then they get into trouble with some of their distribution partners because companies that they're distributing through ADI have a uh, product that's getting warehoused and they're being charged fees for stuff that isn't selling and it's getting to be a mess. And so then some of their distributors sue them because of these practices. And they're having to continually restate earnings. And it finally drives Robert Holmes out of the company. When you have to continually restate your income and your public company, somebody going to have to take the blame and going to have to fall and be kicked out. And we want someone new. Right. They want to change. And so it was Robert Holmes that ended up being let go and all of that. And Gregory Fishback took on the president's role in addition to the CEO role. And Jim Skorposky actually, funnily enough, was at this point kind of trying to transition out of the company. Hmm. And then he couldn't because they needed a really good financial guy to step in and fix things. Why did he want to leave? He was just ready to do something else. No big scandal or anything. But he was kind of done with it. But then he had to stay because they needed a really slick financial guy to kind of clean up the financial mess. So he took on the CFO responsibility, chief financial officer, in addition to his other duties. So the two co-founders kind of closed ranks. And Robert Holmes, even though they liked him very much, and even though he was a very valuable member of the team, he wasn't a co-founder. So he's the one that ended up having having to to take take the fall. Wow. This was the beginning of the end for Acclaim. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the end. 
because they actually did bounce back a little bit from this disaster by 1997. They did a few different things. The principal problem that they had at this point, and another reason that their product wasn't selling in addition to the quantities of it, right. is that they had fairly weak product on the whole. Some of their games were very good, but they really relied on licenses mm -hmm. and name recognition in order to sell games. They were still heavily reliant on franchises, and if the franchises weren't strong and they weren't the ones who were bringing the franchise to market, they weren't making the money they needed to make. And unlike before, where they were the only ones in town bringing franchises to market, when you have other publishers out there bringing franchises to market, they have to compete heavily in order to bring that franchise to market. That's exactly right. And a couple of different things happened here. First of all, Williams Electronics saw all the money that Acclaim had been making on Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam in the home. Right. And they were like, we need all of that money. We don't <laughs> want to just take a licensing fee. We have these hit arcade games. We're going to convert them ourselves. So when the deal between Acclaim and Williams expired. I forget exactly how many years the deal was, but it was like a five-year deal or something. Mm -hmm. They chose not to renew. Ooh. And then they bought Trade West, which was another NES publisher, probably most well-known for publishing the original Double Dragon on the NES, which we talked about last time, and then for publishing Battletoads from Rare. Those are mm. a couple of Trade West big games. And so Williams bought Trade West, turned it into a subsidiary, and turned that into their console publishing division. Okay, because they had that, they didn't need a claim. Right, they lost the Williams deal. They didn't have any internal product development. They were relying on outside sources, and some of those companies were very good, and some of those companies were more dodgy, and it was getting to the point now where it wasn't just enough to slap a license on a product. You had to have a little bit of game behind it. The audience was becoming more savvy. Oh, yeah. You couldn't have your tie-in franchises like Beetlejuice or that one was pretty bad. Yeah, there were a lot of kind of dodgy games. More on the NES than there were on the Super NES, but still a lot of dodgy stuff. So Even like one on the N64, the biggest one I can think of on that one is uh, Superman 64. Oh, yes. Now, that was not a claim. That was that was a completely different company, but that was... But uh, the same kind of idea as that. Yeah, that was unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> you you need to have a good something resembling a game here and not just put a pretty coat of paint on it. So, to Gregory and Jim's credit, they responded to this situation very quickly and very smartly. They decided there were two things they needed to do. They needed to make sure they had their own franchises that they could count on for the home market. Mm -hmm. And they had to make sure that they had high-quality development that they could rely on. Hmm. So they went out and spent some money, because even though they lost a bunch of money, they still had money. Mm -hmm. And they bought three of their best developers, contract developers. Mm -hmm. Sculptured Software in Utah which was considered one of the very best developers on console systems in the West. Mm -hmm. They bought Probe Software in Britain, which mm -hmm. was one of the largest independent developers, not publishers, just developers, mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom. And they bought Iguana, which was down in Texas and which had created NBA Jam, which was not 
created the concept of the game, but created the port of NBA mm-hmm. Jam that was very successful. So for the first time, Acclaim had internal development studios. Hmm. The other thing they did is they went looking for ways to increase their IP staple. So they bought a company called Valiant Comics. It was a comic company that wasn't doing very well and didn't really have much going for it. But, you know, they tried to buy Marvel Comics a few years ago. That didn't work. So now they bought Valiant Comics so they'd at least have some IP. Right. Like a character called Turok, which was actually a Valiant Comics character. Really? And then recognizing that they had had so much success with Williams Arcade Games, they actually established their own coin-operated games division. Huh. Mm-hmm. And they lured Tom Pettit away from Sega to run it. Tom Pettit had been president of Sega Enterprises USA, not to be confused with Sega of America. Mm-hmm. Sega Enterprises USA is the American arcade division of Sega. They lured away Tom Pettit, who had been president of Sega Enterprises USA for years, and they had been planning to bring in a bunch of Williams employees, Williams employees that were ready to leave Williams Hmm. to staff it. The Williams deal fell through, so they had to go with a plan B, which was bringing in a bunch of people involved with a company called American Laser Games that was never a very successful company. But that's how they kind of got their engineering staff in, and they actually founded their own coin-op division Hmm. because they thought that they could score the big licenses and score the big hits in the arcade and then bring them to the home just like NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat. And this is the late 90s, and that's when the arcade stuff is going out, too. That ended up being a mistake. Acclaim Coin-Op never worked very well. It was closed down just a couple of years later for the exact reasons you mentioned. The arcade market was already a little bit dodgy by this point, and it was not the time to be a new company trying to break into the arcade. But Electronic Arts did the same thing. A lot of people don't realize that. Acclaim and Electronic Arts both in the same time period here established coin-op divisions. I did not know EA did that. Yeah, and again, it never worked out well. I think they released one game and, you know, pulled out. Acclaim, I think, got two out. I know they got a Batman Forever game out, and I think they got one other out. But, you know, it never never worked out for them. So that ended up being a mistake. But the rest of it was very smart because they had good, solid internal development now. Mm-hmm. And they had, even though Valiant Comics, they didn't get much out of it. They got the Turok franchise out of it. And mm-hmm. I don't know that they really needed the Turok name. I don't know that that was a big enough name to actually attract anybody. Right. But at least it gave them a starting point for a game. It gave them an idea that we can have this crazy first person game with. It's kind of a first-person shooter, but also has some platforming elements and has dinosaurs. Because at this point, you know, Jurassic Park is just a couple of years in the past. Dinosaurs are really, really big, and first-person shooters are really, really big. So Combine the two. Yeah, exactly. Combine the two, and you're, you've probably got something there. I just remember with uh, Turok and on the N64, you and I both played it. I think you still probably own it. I do. Um. Originally, when I played it, I thought it was just something unique that was just brought up. I had no clue that it was a comic. And neither did I. I don't, like I said, I don't think Valiant Comics was really that well known. But it worked out for them because Turok was a decent sized hit on the N64. So by 1997, Acclaim is doing okay again. It takes a while to get this all worked out because it takes a while to build up that development expertise. I mean, they're bringing in pre-made expertise by bringing in whole studios, but still it takes a while to get that all integrated, to get everybody on the same page, to get that product going. 
of course, the N64 gets delayed, and so that delays thing. And then Turok even gets delayed a little later because they wanted a little more time to polish it. And I think at that point, Nintendo, I think, felt the need to stagger the releases of the games that it did have control of Mm -hmm. because, as it turned out, there wasn't very much N64 software. (laughs) And that was uh, eventually the Achilles heel of the N64 was a lack of software. And so the trade press speculated at the time that the real reason Turok was delayed was not so much because the claim needed to polish it more but because nintendo wanted a big first quarter release in 1997 because Mm. there weren't any releases to speak of but turok comes out it's a very sizable hit claim gets some sports games going on the n64 and because electronic arts stays out of the n64 market until 1998 Mm -hmm. because they don't like the idea of the higher cost of cartridges and they want a sweetheart deal to get involved with that, as EA often does, and Nintendo wasn't willing to give them one. EA stayed out of the N64 market until 1998, and so that gave room for other companies to publish sports games, and Acclaim Mm. had a baseball game that was popular. Uh, They were still doing some wrestling games. They didn't have the WWE license at that point, but they still had uh, licenses to certain individual wrestlers like Hulk Hogan, so that was doing okay for them. So they were having modest success on the N64, and they became profitable again. But by focusing still on the cartridge market and focusing still on the N64 market, they never got a big market share on the PlayStation. They never became a bankable brand on the PlayStation. And that was a real problem. They didn't even try to publish any games? They published on on the PlayStation. They did? But they were late to the party. Okay. They didn't invest in it right away, and there were much stronger games and franchises there. You know, their strongest product was that Turok product, as mm-hmm. it turned out, but that was exclusive to the N64 because and of that Dream Team deal. And they couldn't take advantage of the capabilities of the PlayStation, which would probably have made the Turok game a lot better. Well, I don't know about that. PlayStation wasn't really good for first-person shooters. Mm-hmm. Because it turned out that the PlayStation could do 3D graphics, but it could only sort of do 3D graphics. You may remember that most of the games that were really big hits like Resident Evil and Final Fantasy VII used three-dimensional polygonal characters set against pre-rendered backgrounds. Ah. And the controls tended to be kind of clunky and the games tended to be kind of slow. I mean, for Resident Evil, that kind of worked because it was supposed to be a survival horror game. And same with Silent Hill. These are supposed to be kind of survival horror games where being a little clunky in the controls kind of adds to the tension mm-hmm. of what you're going through. And only having certain fixed camera angles to view the game world from kind of works for you know raising the tension of the uh, horror experience and you know jump scares and all of that kind of thing so it kind of worked for that kind of thing but you you'll recall there really weren't any big first person shooters on the PlayStation I actually can't think of any most of them didn't get very big or very popular and the reason for that is that really it still didn't do first person shooters very well mhm The N64 had its own faults, especially in terms of the limited storage capacity of the cartridge, which means you couldn't have as fancy a multimedia with the full motion video and the advanced multimedia music and sound effects and whatnot. But in some ways, you could create a smoother, better kind of 3D game. Mm -hmm. Look at Mario 64 versus Crash Bandicoot. Hmm. Both 3D platformer-style games, but... 
Crash Bandicoot kind of had to be done from that fixed angle in the rear to kind of accommodate that. Of course, Tomb Raider was more 3D free roaming, but still not quite as big and expansive a world as Mario 64 had. By being set in tombs the way it was, they kind of naturally limited their 3D space that they had to... Right, they could only render so far out. This is why in Silent Hill, you had the misty Silent Hill, and that was just like, yeah, we're just going to stop rendering right at that limit there, and uh, we're going to call it myth. Exactly. And, I mean, that was necessary sometimes on the N64 as well. Turok was a very misty game, for instance, for exactly the same reason. <laughs> But you could still get something faster on the N64 when you're talking about a full kind of 3D experience. And so a game like Turok really lent itself better to the N64 because you could have faster and more intense action in a 3D world. Especially if you had that memory upgrade. Exactly. Which came along a little later, so Turok per se didn't take advantage of that. But certainly later games like Perfect Dark Perfect Dark, and the Rogue Squadron game from Factor 5 very much took advantage of that. So I don't think Turok would have necessarily been a better game on the PlayStation. Okay. But it was trapped on the N64 anyway. I mean, they could have certainly taken sequels to the PlayStation because the sequels weren't tied up in that. But they basically stayed really focused on the N64 because I think by that time it was in their wheelhouse. And they'd had a long relationship with Nintendo. They'd had a long relationship with cartridge media. And there was a place for them on the N64 because fewer third-party developers were on the system. Yeah, the only game I ever recall seeing that had the acclaimed label on there was N64. Sure, and they had a few. Their their market share at some point got as high as 5% on the PlayStation, but that's really, really low. Mm -hmm. They kind of got pigeonholed there. When the PlayStation 2 came along, they did get on the PlayStation 2. Really? I didn't think they survived that long. Oh, yeah, they only went bankrupt in 2004. Oh, really? So they were there for most of the PlayStation era. PlayStation launched in the U.S. in 2000. Hmm. They got on the PlayStation. By this time, they were making money again, but they never quite, I think they were never quite in the kind of health they needed to be in to kind of seize the market again. You know, in the 16-bit era, they were known for their big marketing campaigns like Mortal Monday. Mm -hmm. And at this point, they don't have Robert Holmes anymore, who was kind of their big marketing guru. He's the one who really knew how to sell something, and he had to leave. Exactly. And they didn't have the profits anymore to necessarily invest in the huge marketing campaigns anymore because they're hurting and game development costs are rising, mm -hmm. and they've lost a lot of their capitalization, and they're just not as big a company anymore. They can't compete with the EAs of the world anymore on marketing spend. And they kind of let themselves get pigeonholed into the N64, which meant that they didn't have much cachet amongst Sony users coming yeah. in from the PlayStation transition to the PlayStation 2. They had a couple of licenses that were still kind of half decent. The biggest one they had was with Dave Mira, who was very big in the BMX bike racing circuit. Mm -hmm. And so they had a couple of bankable names. And they had the South Park license, though, the really? games that they, yeah, they were the first company with the South Park license, got that during the N64 era. 
Oh, yeah, there was a South Park game on the N64. Yeah, kind of a first-person shooter kind of strangeness. (laughs) And uh, their South Park games were never that good, so they never really exploited that South Park brand very well. So they had a couple of brands and licenses that were okay. They had a couple of development studios that were okay. But by this point, it's getting harder and harder to break into new platforms. It's taking more and more capital. At this point, it seems like every console generation, you lose a few of the mid-tier players because there comes a point as development costs rise and marketing budgets rise that you either need to find the hit that moves you into the top tier of publishers Mm -hmm. or you fall apart. And if you look at this last console generation, you had IDOS Mm -hmm. bought out by Square Enix. Mm -hmm. You had Midway disintegrate. You had THQ disintegrate. You mm-hmm. had Atari basically lose all relevance. The company technically still exists. And, of course, this is not the same Atari that released the VCS. The right. name went There's through so, so many, many transitions. We'll have to do a flowchart. <laughs> history of the Atari brand. We should really do a podcast on the history of the Atari brand. All right. Let me write that down real quick. Yep. Right. So, so Atari's still around, but they're really not a publisher anymore they're practically just a corpse so you had kind of that hollowing out of the mid-tier and i think that's kind of that kind of thing is basically inevitable with any console shift now is that if you're mid-tier you have to kind of figure out how to raise the stakes or you either combine with another company or you go out of business and so acclaim is stuck having to get on another big platform when they're only doing kind of modestly well And at this point, I think they get a little desperate because Mm. their marketing kind of goes off the rails. Really? In what way? Well, they started doing these very strange marketing campaigns, one of which, uh, when one of the Turok games came out, they offered $10,000 to anyone who would name their baby Turok, you know, a baby born within a certain period of months. That's kind of weird. (laughs) Yeah. And they were doing some promotions in cemeteries, which was kind of strange and got a lot of backlash. Most of this marketing was coming out of their uh, international operations out of the UK, but they kind of started getting some backlash and it, it kind of reeks of desperation. I don't know if that's why it was. I can't, even though I've talked to some people at Acclaim, I don't have as much understanding of what was going on in this later period, but it certainly reeks of desperation. And then they strangled their last golden goose because the the Dave Mira franchise had some recognition and had some success. Mm-hmm. And then they decided that they wanted to get a little edgy and a little mature. I mean, this is kind of the time period of Grand Theft Auto. Mm. You know, Grand Theft Auto 3 has hit and this kind of more mature game is suddenly the new in thing. Yeah. And so they decide to make Dave Mira BMX XXX. Why? Well, like I said, I think they were desperate. I think they were trying to get noticed. And I think they felt that with Grand Theft Auto 3, mature games were becoming a new big thing because Grand Theft Auto 3 was huge. Right. But I'm just thinking, like, it's BMX. It's racing, cycling. How do you... Who in their right mind thinks that just by making it more raunchy and... Well, I think they figure... based would be a... Good idea. I think they figure college students like BMX racing and college students like naked chicks. So, you know, do you like BMX racing? Yes. <laughs> do you like topless women? 
Yes, the, Mr. Salesman. Then you should come over to a claim we and we can do some BMX racing while oogling topless women. I mean, it's. I think that had to be the logic. And my confusion and boy should probably be how most of the people probably... Uh... So there are two problems here. First, they get all that negative publicity over that because mature games are becoming a thing, hmm. but they're not becoming that much of a thing it's not becoming a like let's throw tits and ass into everything and you know <laughs> it'll sell right. better it, it it not to the point where if we go full raunchy r-rated x-rated material go gun ho everyone will love you it's more we want pg pg 13 Right. We want stuff with more substance, something that's more realistic to what's going on in society as opposed to a very childlike version of story. <laughs> exactly. And then second of all, how do you think Dave Mir feels about this? Um, I think I'm going to quote Mr. Horace here and go, no, sir, I don't like it. <laughs> exactly. So he runs as far away from this thing as he can. He sues to get out of his deal <laughs> with a claim. And, of course, there is no Dave Mira BMX XXX. Mm. There's only BMX XXX. Because you better believe Dave Mira did not let his game get attached to that. Well, not, let his, let, not let his name get attached to that. Exactly. So... <laughs> They release it so they don't have their license and they've alienated kind of their last big license. Yeah. They release the game without the license. It's not even that titillating because, of course, they don't go full XXX. You know, they're you're viewing topless women from the back or the side or something. You're not actually seeing full frontal nudity. So, uh, yeah. And it, I mean, what system did it get released on? The PlayStation 2. PlayStation 2? Okay. So. so there's not even any real XXX content. Mm -hmm. So anyone that's just looking for cheap thrills aren't even going to get it from this game. Yeah. It's a disaster. The game's a disaster. On multiple levels. Uh, yeah, it's a sales disaster. It's a disaster on all levels. And they lose their last license. And at this point, they're really hurting. And there had been attempts over the last few years to kind of restructure. They'd brought in a couple of presidents. Basically, Gregory Fishback had retained the presidency of a claim, but then they had a chief operating officer in North America and a chief operating officer in Europe mm -hmm. serving underneath the president. And they had brought in a couple of COOs in the United States from outside the video game industry to kind of stabilize things. And, and that wasn't going well. They weren't getting it restructured. Finally, Gregory stepped aside. I assume that he was kind of strongly encouraged to step aside, but I don't know that for certain. Mm -hmm. uh, he remained CEO of the company, but they brought Rod Cousins in to be president of the company. And Rod Cousins had been running the European operation where some of this crazy marketing was coming from, but <laughs> Rod Cousins had had a little bit more success in Europe than they were having in the U.S., and he had a long track record in Europe. Right. And so they brought Rod Cousins in to be president. And then in 2003, Gregory Fishback even relinquished the CEO position. He remained chairman, but he gave up the CEO position and Rod Cousins was put completely in charge of the company. Hmm. By then, it was too late. At this point, they have no legitimate licenses. They have no market share. If the name is remembered at all, it's remembered as the company that did the crazy marketing stunts or the company that did the XXX biking game. Or, at least in my mind, there was more 
that company that put out a bunch of games in the Nintendo and Super Nintendo and a few games on the N64. What happened to that company? Exactly. And there's another console transition on the horizon. Xbox 360 is coming in 2005. The company is mortally wounded. And so basically, you know, about a year later, they wrap it up. Now, most of the time when a company enters bankruptcy, they they enter Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And basically in Chapter 11, you're trying to get out from under your debt. So Chapter 11 bankruptcy is a way of restructuring your debt so that you can remain in operation while paying off your creditors under a structured deal. So you're trying to get as much money to your creditors as possible. While remaining in business. Mm Mm-hmm. And some companies make it through Chapter 11 bankruptcies, and some companies don't make it through Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Acclaim didn't even try. They went for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Chapter 7 bankruptcy is, we are no longer an operating concern. We are going to sell off all of our assets, and we will pay creditors what we can from those proceeds based on a structured deal worked out with the bankruptcy court and all of that. That's sort of the equivalent of the nuclear option is uh, I'm taking my ball and going home. Everything's going to be blown up and uh, whatever you can get from the ashes, you're welcome to it. Exactly. So a claim just dies in 2004. That is it. They they declare chapter seven and they're gone, which is a, a kind of sorry end for what had once been a great company in a way. But you know, Acclaim was always kind of a weird company. Mm-hmm. It was a company that was more based on form than substance. Mm-hmm. It was more about making a big splash with marketing, making a big splash with licenses, and not necessarily always having the best games. Now, mm-hmm. some of their games were very good. Double Dragon 2 on the NES was good. a wonderful port. Uh, Mortal Kombat was ported very well. NBA Jam was a wonderful game. So it's not like everything they did was just awful. But there was definitely kind of a form over substance feel to it. In later years, Electronic Arts was really accused in the kind of 2000 to 2005 period Mm -hmm. of getting way too into licenses and kind of not doing enough original property. But even their licensed product, even if some of it was a little mediocre, there was always kind of a sense that there were competent development studios and competent development going on underneath it. Acclaim just had a reputation of not having the greatest product all of the time. You know, it sort of harkens back to our old uh, story from way back when, creative versus business. And it seems like with Acclaim that business gone out of control they didn't have the creative side that they needed and it's just business 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 and it's out of control and it's unsustainable exactly i do think that that's very fair to say and you know as i said to their credit they tried to fix that by buying sculptured software and iguana and probe and setting up their internal development but it's too late by that point it was too late and i really what they discovered i think is that It's fine when the cost for development is fairly low and the competition is fairly sparse Mm -hmm. and you have a big budget, 
it kind of works. And so it worked for them on the NES because there's no question that the management of Acclaim in their early days were very good and really knew what they were doing. Right. I don't think that they necessarily anticipated how great the development cost would get and how important it would be to have the technology and the know-how in-house. And I think by the time they came to that realization, they had kind of pigeonholed themselves. Yeah, I think it was sort of a, a unique situation of event to even allow a claim to rise to power. The fact that you had to crash and then they came in and they got in on the ground floor with Nintendo and I mean, they put out a lot of bad games. Think of well, most of the LJN library yes. is atrocious. Yes. And But pretty much they're the only game in town. They're the only people in town. So for the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo era, that's how they make a lot of money. But they can't sustain that further on. It would be interesting from an alternate history standpoint of if there was no Crash and Atari and there was the original transition from the uh, VCS era into the 8-bit era, and we didn't have the full wipeout, would a claim even be viable as a company? Exactly. And, you know, that's an excellent point, and I'm not sure it would be, because, of course, at the time the crash started in 1983, you had a lot of media companies coming in, like CBS and Fox and Universal, and you had a lot of computer game companies starting to come in, like Broderbund and Sirius and Sierra. Hmm. And that seemed to be kind of the future track that the video game industry was taking. We talked about this a little bit, about how we were kind of close to convergence mm -hmm. and the creation of a video game industry right. when the crash happened, because you had players from different entertainment fields all kind of converging on the console market. Right, right. And and then the crash happened, and that set that process back. That just pretty much reset the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And so there was a place for Acclaim. And Acclaim's business model for the 8 and 16-bit era was absolutely brilliant. I don't want to knock these guys too much. Now, you know, as a gamer, I didn't own many Acclaim games. I mean, most of them weren't that great. But... As businessmen, they did know what they were doing, and it mm -hmm. just feels like that strategy just didn't translate well into a new era. And we've seen, we've seen a lot of companies hit this problem. Basically, the same thing happened to THQ, mm -hmm. which just disintegrated a few years ago. THQ, by 2007, was a $1 billion company, which wow. didn't put it anywhere near the leaders. The leaders at this time were like in the 3 to $4 billion range. Right. But still, $1 billion was nothing to sneeze at. And they built their empire by doing children's licenses. They would get a cheap, well, not cheap, they would get a reasonable license from a company like Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. And they would create a licensed game based on that. They would put very little development uh, dollars into it, but they would put a lot of marketing dollars into it. Hmm. And they would release it on every platform they possibly could. And even though any particular one of these games would only perform somewhat modestly well, the aggregate of all of those games together, the sales, meant they'd do uh, very, very well. And hmm. this doesn't this sound a little familiar? Yeah. <laughs> this is basically what Acclaim was doing with the added wrinkle that they were specifically kind of targeting children's franchises hmm. like Pixar and Nickelodeon. Hmm. And that worked for them really well. Until the last console generation, 
when licenses became scarcer and more expensive mm -hmm. and development costs got way more expensive. And so you couldn't do a cheap licensed game anymore. You had to put a lot of money into a licensed game, but the return on that licensed game wasn't going to necessarily be that great. And THQ basically waited too long. Again, they finally realized that they needed to transition into serious third-party AAA development with right. original properties. And they finally, like Acclaim, they finally realized that, but they realized it even later in Acclaim. Acclaim figured it out in enough time that they had a few more hits left in them. Mm -hmm. THQ was just starting to turn that ship when their financial situation became completely untenable. And they ran into the ground and sank. Exactly. And so they disintegrated. I can't remember if they actually filed for Chapter 7, but they broke the whole thing apart. I mean, there was right. no more THQ. And so it was almost the acclaimed story again. Hmm. It's that tact of doing licensed product with minimal development behind it is going to work for a while. But eventually, because the cost of development is always increasing, because Moore's Law is always telling us that technology is improving mm -hmm. at a rapid rate, it eventually becomes untenable and the, the business model doesn't work anymore. And then someone else down the line then maybe figures out how to work, make the business model work again because they correct and they figure out how to do stuff relatively cheaply with the new technology. And then mm -hmm. you can kind of have another cycle of that. And you can do the whole marketing licensing thing. Right. But then it kind of inevitably always falls apart. And even EA found this a little bit. I mean, EA never fell apart. EA was in a different boat because EA was always a much stronger company and EA always had the sports games to fall back on. Mm. EA Sports is a juggernaut. Yeah. So EA never had and that and they were also set up for being agile for, yeah, let's test these waters. Yes. And if something doesn't work out, we can turn on a dime. Exactly. Uh, you know, for a large company, they they were fairly agile. Um, so EA never hit quite the same level of difficulty that a THQ or an Acclaim did. But in the mid 2000s, they were starting to take some heat because even though they were still making money, their license strategy meant that they had missed out on the big hits. So their licenses did well. Their Harry Potter games sold very well. Their Lord of the Rings games sold well. Mm -hmm. But some of those licenses were starting to go in-house again because the media companies were coming back in. This is another thing that plays into this. Every few years, and this could actually be another topic. <laughs> Ooh, topics. Every few years, the media companies decide that they're going to do video games again. And mm. so then they found their own studios and then they take their licenses back in house. So EA made a lot of money with Lord of the Rings license, but then Warner Brothers established interactive division mm. and Warner Brothers had the rights to the Lord of the Rings movies because and so they took those Lord of the Rings projects back in house. So EA had been getting decent returns on its licensed properties, but the big hits weren't licensed properties. The big hits were Halo, mm. Grand Theft Auto 3 original properties mm -hmm. and ea didn't have a big hit they just had a lot of mid-level hits mm -hmm. and so they just discovered that they kind of had to kind of move more towards original product again and that's when you had the transition where larry probe stepped down and john riccatello became ceo and they didn't manage it well there were mm -hmm. problems we won't go into that on this episode but there were problems in the way they managed the transition and that caused them some difficulty but the point is even ea which understood how to do licenses well and actually release successful product based on licenses that also 
played half decently. Right. Even they had some problems with the license model eventually. It just seems to be a model that doesn't hold up under the long term. And so while Acclaim was an absolutely perfect company for the NES and the Super NES in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, it was the exact wrong company and wrong model for the PlayStation and the PlayStation 2 era. And mm -hmm. so ultimately it did not survive. Wow. And that is how Acclaim has fallen. Where do you want to go next time? Well, uh, we've done a couple of consoles in a row, which normally we switch at that point. But uh, while we're on a console kick, we've been kind of talking a little bit about, especially with Acclaim here, about the unique parameters of the Nintendo market mm -hmm. and the unique ways that Nintendo controlled that market. Yeah, we've and, talked a lot about the different ways Nintendo has done stuff, especially over these last episodes and uh, before. Exactly. And Nintendo often gets a bad rap in gamer circles for kind of having the control that they had over the market. But I think what often gets overlooked is the circumstances that led that kind of system of control to be necessary in its own time mm -hmm. and have kind of missed how Nintendo was able to use this control that they had in a way that benefited the entire market and actually led to some real innovations in the way video games were marketed and produced. And while I certainly don't think that I think it's good that Nintendo does not have that monopoly anymore because at a certain right. point, the market did need to expand and did need to become more competitive. I think it would be interesting to kind of examine how Nintendo dominated the market and what that meant for the stabilization and the growth of the video game industry as a whole. It what pretty much resuscitated a dead empire. Exactly. All right. And we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>